The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The magic of, of us being here really lies in, in, in what we create. I find that, see, I don't really need superstition. I don't, I don't really need um, um, believing in, in, in books like The Secret or something like that, where you can order from the universe. I, I don't really need that because I find it already incredible what we as humans are capable when we think about literature, when we think about painting. And I want to leave that open and I want this uncertainty doesn't have to be you know people call it the muse people call it the sublime people people call it um whatever magical inspiration but i think just just leaving it open allowing for that gap and that's yeah. a, that's a scary thing that's a scary thing in life allowing for that gap in a relationship as well allowing for not fully understanding something that is that is in front of you and and i find that a very comfortable place to be and i guess that's that's why i'm an artist because I think that's where interesting things happen and I, I can um, accept that feeling of being a little bit queasy or being being uncertain where the journey is going. Mm. And, and that's, that's where, where we have the room to contemplate interesting questions. Mm, that's German artist Charlie Stein talking about the magic of art and where it can take us. We live in the flicker, as Conrad said. And in my adaptation of that phrase, I like to think of the flicker as the place where lightning splits the sky and our eyes see clearly both the inky darkness of night and a bright display of power. With art, with literature, we contemplate the human mind at its finest and most complex. And creators of art and literature go deep in that space to bring us news of mystery and miracle. Charlie Stein, a painter, has combined the two. Like an intellectual detective, she and her partner Andy Best have gone into the minds of great writers to see what's there. And instead of presenting their case to a police chief or a table full of dinner guests, setting out the logical this and that of a burglary or murder, they've presented their findings on the canvas, expanding literary texts into works of visual art based on the clues and context of some of the world's greatest novels. Heady stuff. Don't worry, people. Your humble podcaster Jack, a.k.a. the lunkhead who's sprinting alongside these geniuses and trying to keep up, is here to help. Charlie Stein and her paintings about classics today on The History of Literature. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We are on a roll. 
the lunkhead is coming through. <laughs> you might think I'm being hard on myself, calling myself a lunkhead. Well, check the reviews on this thing. I've been called worse. My enemies have sharp tongues, people. Sharp fingers typing away at their keyboard. Lunkhead is being a little charitable in the whole scheme of things. Lunkhead is being charitable to myself. High praise. Or about as good as I can claim to be Jack Wilson Lunkhead. But I'm a lunkhead with questions and a lunkhead who is on a roll. Oh, yes. Thanks to my guests. I've never felt better. We are on a red hot streak. Here at the History of Literature podcast, red hot, burning up. Let me just stick to June. The four women we've had in June. This, look, I know there are a lot of great podcasts out there. I'm sure there are. Stands to reason. There's no real way to cover all the many, many great podcasts. But I will put this stretch of guests... That we've just had. I'll put this stretch of guests up against any other podcast. In one month, we've had Yang Wang telling us about her childhood in China and how the censorship affected her mind, turning her own native language against her. She prefers to write fiction in English now because of the way Chinese has been distorted in her mind. If she thinks stories... In Chinese, she can't get at emotional truths in the same way as she can in English. They don't come out right. What an amazing conversation that was. That would be enough for one month. But we didn't stop there. We also had Lori Frankel, who brought her own lifetime of love for theater and Shakespeare to our discussion of Hamlet. And I could listen to her talk about Hamlet all day, people. So much Sparkle in her wit and her wisdom and her passion. A writer, a person with pizzazz. We could all use more pizzazz. We could all use more Laurie Frankel. We were two for two. And oh yes, along the way, we also threw in our own little efforts with Tristram Shandy and Don Quixote and Catherine Mansfield and William Wordsworth. Ho-hum, just four all-time greats. Those were just extra. The guests are the thing. Because then we had our Brazilian friend, Claudia. The most endearing and sincere guest imaginable. Here to tell us about her country's literary hero, Machado de Assis. That was another treat. This is like eating ice cream and then more ice cream and then more ice cream. You don't get tired of it. Could eat ice cream every day. But look at those guests. So far, three women from three different continents, all here to deliver some of the deepest insights imaginable. And today, we had a fourth woman from a fourth continent with a completely different background and on a completely different subject, Charlie Stein. This is a murderer's row, people. This is Mount Rushmore. Yang Wang, Lori Frankel, Claudia Leitano, and now Charlie Stein. I feel like I should just stop there. Maybe this should be the final episode of the history of literature. How could we ever have a run like this one? My goodness, we have been blessed. What a great group of guests. I would stop there, except I've already got a couple of other guests recorded, and they're just as good, too. <laughs> 
Ah, our cup runneth over. So let's get to Charlie Stein. We might take a week off, by the way. We will see. I'm about to head out on the road, and I thought maybe I could squeeze in a Jack Kerouac episode first. We have one on Oscar Wilde coming up, but we will see. A lot of things are brewing right now, both here at the podcast and in my other life. The one outside the Jack Wilson Studios. I'm a lunkhead there, too, of course, but a lunkhead with bills to pay and various other commitments. So we will see. We might have a week off and we might not, but we will be back. My enthusiasm has never been higher. I'm not always proud of this thing. I'm doing the best I can. But when I think about the guests we've been fortunate enough to have, I could not be more proud. Now, I hope I haven't given Charlie too much to live up to. It's like those comedians who hate to follow Robin Williams or something. How do you go on stage after that tornado has just blown through? Well, I feel good about this group of women who've been on our stage this month. It's like we had Robin Williams and then Eddie Murphy and then George Carlin and then Richard Pryor. No one can follow them, but also they can follow anyone. This conversation... With uh, <laughs> I was going to say Lori Stein with Charlie Stein. I'm jumbling them all together. Almost interchangeable, except they're so distinct and unique. This conversation with Charlie Stein is worth a listen, people. So here's what we're going to do. Take a quick break and come back with part one of our conversation with Charlie. Then we'll interrupt partway through. We start talking about our paintings about literature, and at that point, I will tell you where to check them out in case you want to see what we're about to discuss, which I recommend doing. The paintings are gorgeous, fantastic, illuminating. So listen for that direction or suggestion. So here we go. Part one of our conversation with the wonderful Charlie Stein after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Okay, joining me now for a special look at artworks in literature is German artist Charlie Stein, whose paintings have been exhibited in Berlin, Frankfurt, Luxembourg, Vienna, Istanbul, Italy, Switzerland, Shanghai, New York City, and many other locations around the world. She's here today to talk about her life as a passionate reader, which led her to undertake a series of paintings that brought to life works of art as they were described in classic works of literature. While those artworks could previously only be imagined, Charlie and her partner Andy Best have used descriptive clues and historical context to recreate for us what those works might have looked like on the canvas. Charlie Stein, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. So let's start with your background as an artist. When did you know you wanted to become one? So... I, I think early on, so I grew up in the in the 90s, so to say, like still post-war Germany, I guess. And, mm. and my parents were both um, children of, of German refugees. So so my one of my grandmothers was from Bohemia mm-hmm. and my other gra- grandmother was from Moravia. So so in a weird way, I'm a, a third generation refugee, uh, um, but but they were German refugees, of course. So we didn't have a lot. So it was all hand-me-downs. So I mm. had this... Um, oil painting kid from my from my mother who was which was like a hand-me-down from from her mother or from an aunt or something and all the oil paints were really dried out but she she was really adamant that I should do an oil painting I was like six years old Mm. and so I I remember this so vividly because I was attempting to do this abstract painting with triangles and uh, uh, circles and and squares and and I think I must have seen some art books like uh, maybe some Malevich, some Kandinsky, some Miro, something that my mom had somewhere in the in the basement library that we had. Mm-hmm. And and I tried this and it, it looked really horrible to me. It was really hard to handle. They were like dried out. The canvas was lumpy. And and I remember being really disappointed. And my mother said, well, it's really good for a child. Mind you, I, I was six years old, right? Mm, so yeah. just just doing it, I guess, was already um, um, uh, an end in itself. And so it was the first time that I realized that there is a context around uh, who the originator is. You oh, know, in, in that right. case, okay, I'm I'm a child, but <laughs> but but there is like it's a different level. You know, I don't have to do everything uh, uh, perfect immediately. Yeah. And just having that feeling, and I think with talent, it's always like that. It, it may be writing or dancing that you just maybe a, a tiny, like a tad, maybe one percent or five percent better, just by being exposed to things or just by having the right for dancing is maybe the right figure and you're just a little bit better and you get compliments depending on on the stage you're you're at you know like like you're a little child dancing and like oh you're so so good with your body and you just increase um you increase your dedication because you get positive feedback and i think uh when we talk about talent there is um the genius can also be something quite toxic because people think like you don't have to do anything and you just you're just this amazing genius yeah. but actually no it, it it has a long history like like what you can do now today as a 30 year old as a 40 year old as a 50 year old there has a long history of you um doing that thing over and over again yeah because you, you got positive feedback at some somewhere along the road right yeah you're almost describing it as less of uh, something made you want to be an artist and more of you didn't receive any discouragement or any reason to stop 
trying to get yeah. better and become an artist. And it really, as a parent and, and as someone who is looking at the next few generations, uh, that seems like a really good lesson for those of us who are trying to foster uh, whatever kind of interest it is in our children, that sometimes it's just giving people room to grow into what it is that they would do if we didn't tell them not to. Yeah, I, I think this idea of pulling someone into shape or educating them in a in an authorian way, it's actually not super helpful. Children are not, they they don't stay confident, especially once they become teenagers. Mm-hmm. So so it's actually preserving their confidence, and that's also something I realize when I when I teach. I teach at an at an art academy, and and I just realize um, encouragement is never what they get enough of, you know. Yeah. So so I think in the end, it's it's really it's really important not to ruin the little things that are already there, you know, and mm-hmm. just just make sure that 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 they can evolve. And and I think because otherwise you're losing all these amazing novels, you're losing all these amazing artworks yeah. because you're telling people that they have to grow up to be something I don't know that that uh, helps to administrate society, right? And and you, but you need all of the different um, different characters in a society in order to make it interesting and worthwhile protecting. Right, right. So what sort of child were you? Were you a loner? Were you? Uh, someone, did you have your nose in the books? Uh, were you always drawing, always painting, or were, did you have a lot of friends? Or what kind of childhood was it like? I think a childhood is really long. So, so we're talking basically from the ages of of one to eighteen, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and there are so many different phases, and and I think it's so complex. And when you talk to kids, like they they're in so many different um, different yeah. stages themselves. So, so for me, I would say. Um, as a, as a younger child, I was always drawing. I, I was really short sighted. I like my nose was literally stuck to the paper, and I would always have something <laughs> running in the background. You know, it was, yeah. like the TV was running, but I would never even look up. And I still do that today. So, so I think oral stories are something that are really fascinating to me to me still, and that's also why I like the format of podcasts so much, because it's something that you you don't need to to take an extra step. You know to um, to engage, like I don't need to put my pen down, I don't need to put my brush down, but I can, I can hear it, and I. It's actually good for painting. That's the other thing. Like when you're painting, it's really good not to be always alone with your thoughts. Yeah. Because it can get really intense if you just always. With, sometimes you need it. You know, you do a tricky bit. You just need the quiet. But um, thoughts are, are quite intense. So, but coming back to your to your original question, I'm sorry, I, I did that little excursion there. That's okay. Um, I was I was bookwormish. I remember my mom like kind of dragging me out of a caravan in uh, during the summer holidays and saying I have to get a ten or something like that. And I just wanted to read all these library books. And <laughs> I, I but but I also do remember, of course, I, I had friends. You know, I was I was um, yeah. I had all of this, but at the same time, I did feel extremely alienated. I did feel like I never fit in, and I had to pretend a little bit to be the child of my age that I maybe wasn't. Mm. And, and I think it's good for observa- observation uh, skills yeah. because you just start observing more carefully your environment, which is a bit, you know, it's it's disorientating for a teenager when you feel like, oh, I have to play pretend in order to fit. Yeah, to fit. right. But, but yeah, but then, I mean, then I, I got to university and I, I, I mean, I wouldn't believe it, but just all of a sudden, you know, the things that you felt maybe slightly ashamed of, or I used to get uh, bullied for for asking too many questions in class in, mm. in high school. 
And and I just thought like the teachers, at least half of them were the most interesting people there. So I, I did I did want to know more about uh, some of the fascinating things they were telling us. And I know this sounds extremely nerdy. But there was something that was really well received when you, uh, once I was in university, all of a sudden it just, just clicked. It made sense. I felt really at home there. Yeah, I can remember. And, and in some ways I, I don't blame my fellow students, but I can remember when I was younger, I, there would be some times where I would think of something I was going to say, and then I would change the vocabulary because I thought if I use that word, it's going to be a, a big thing that everyone is going to think that I'm being pretentious or that I'm trying to show that I'm better than everybody else. And there are going to be people who will react. And I I don't blame them now. I'm sure they were just uncomfortable or they just, you know, they they probably did think I was pretentious or they it made them feel bad about themselves or something if someone their age was walking around using words they didn't know. But looking back on it, I mean, it's just a bad dynamic to have a, one child who's afraid to use a, a a word with multiple syllables. And and there were probably times where I thought that even though everyone would have been fine with it and I wouldn't have been bullied, but yeah. maybe it happened once or twice. And, and that was enough to for me to have yeah. to try to limit myself. And, and it was the same thing. Once I got to college, it was completely different. And suddenly I mm-hmm. felt like I was at home and and could really be who I was. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, it's their loss, really, because they're they're not exposing themselves. Like, that's free knowledge that they didn't get that moment. And on the other hand, I think it also, it really formed your character. Mm. Because one thing I really like about your voice when when I listen to you in the studio is you're always uh, empathizing. You know, you're always thinking about, um, do I pronounce this correctly? Do I offend people with that and that's maybe something that that is a little scar or something from yeah. from high school from trying to do this but it, it also it's your superpower now because <laughs> by doing that you know you make it so much more pleasant to listen to you than than i don't know most other po- podcasts but that sounds uh, maybe a bit too bad <laughs> um, well thank yeah. you i guess we can thank those kids who used to beat me up after school that uh <laughs> yeah well, uh, I wish I, I wish we could say hi to them, but I'm pretty sure it's not the format they're listening to, right? That's so, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the books that you were reading with this uh, this young, short-sighted girl in the '90s <laughs> who was had her nose so close to the books it looked like the pages were stuck to her nose. Uh, what What did you like to read? Well, I think again, like we're talking from the age of like zero like being read things to yeah. 18 but um I, I think my mom started early on reading to me and and that was really lovely because she's a really good reader and and it just like you know it really forms your way of how you approach language and if it's something pleasant that you experience that means you just like you want more of it so mm. i remember around eight i was like reading every book that i could find in the in the local library yeah and and so i did at some i kind of I was proud of being able to read literature that wasn't really for me yet so I would read like Hemingway you know the the old man in the sea that's something that that is it's fine for a kids brain you know it's not yeah. not highly highly right. challenging and like challenging in, in terms of like I don't know um sexual content or different difficult content right 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 so right. it's basically an old man who goes to sea 
Um, but I, I did love oh, anything Treasure Island. I wanted to be a ship's mate, you know, like yeah. I wanted to be yeah. a young boy on a ship, which I knew I could never be. So, so um, anything like like travel stories, Jack London, I loved. I, I just devoured that. But then later on, I really quickly discovered Jane Austen, which which is just a pleasure to read. You know, you don't need a study group like for Proust or something. You don't need somebody to really like get you on the right track. But Jane Austen, you can just read it and enjoy it by yourself. And that's for a lot of literature. You you just want to talk to other people about it, right? It gets right. easier. Right. And do you, do you remember the first time that you thought uh, when you were reading a description of a painting where you thought, I wished I knew what this looked like. I wish I could see a picture of this painting that's being described here. Yeah, I, I remember how the idea for the project formed. And that was during my A-levels when I was, um, I don't know, how old are you, like 18 or something? 17, mm -hmm. I was younger. I was 17 around around the time I did my A-levels. And we, we were reading these plays um, by Schiller and Goethe. And... It was just a lot of like like different content that we had to memorize for for our graduation uh, exams, and so so I started drawing these mind maps of the different plays of the different because it was English, it was German, I think even even in French I had some some tests to do so so I needed like these huge crazy professor kind of mind maps yeah. and I started drawing the the characters and it really helped me because Louise for instance um, um in one of the Schiller plays she's this really like um. Uh, soft and and thin and soft-spoken woman, you know, maybe maybe like with some some you can even see the the little um, veins on her eyelids and and the the skin really like like transparent almost. You can really imagine her as this like fragile person, and and that's also when you when you think about what do they look like, and that's not not a painting, right? That's like just imagining the character. But um, I, I drew that, so I, I drew her portrait, uh, amongst other other things, just to see the psychological dynamic, because yeah. I think you, you really what novels are about, and that's why why poetry I think is so intense and crazy, because it's just like a hand grenade, right? Like a poetry, I just find it really hard to read to myself because I, it's just like this firework of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. But but novels, <laughs> they're more like you you get to know a bunch of people. Yeah. And you see how they interact. And, and then, yeah, that represents things in the real world. But there is a lot of psychology in it. And, and I think putting that into a form that, that I decided, of course, there's like, you know, by the aesthetic choices I make, I'm saying, um, I'm, this kind of person looks like that, which I'm not, I'm not saying that's the case, but you just feel like you're grasping more, um, what you're actually building up, like this universe you're building up in your, in your head. Yeah. Do you think so, yeah. do you think you were doing it because you wanted to uh, remember it better or to understand it more or to experience it more? I think I really wanted to see it. And I think yeah. um, people often ask, like, are you more of an auditive person? Are you more of a visual person? And and I think most people are really visual. We're just not not really trained in it so much. But I think visuals are really, really strong unless you're you're very musical, maybe then then you're you're more auditive. But normally there there is images that we work with. That's also how we dream. We yeah. don't really dream sounds, we don't describe we describe images, right? Yeah. And I just remember um I remember early memory and, and I think maybe other people had this too, is when I first realized the images that are forming in my head when I read about a room, 
uh, I realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm not you, I'm not creating a room in my head. I'm just using a room I know. This is the neighbor's room I'm using right now in my head, you mm, know? Yes. Right. And, I, and I really took a break. I remember that. And there I was really young. I was maybe like 12 or something. And I took a break and I thought about, um, okay, I'm going to have this square room and I'm going to place things in it and, and I'm going to create a room from scratch in my mind because um, because I don't have that yet. I'm always, and that's basically, it's it's dissociate and, and, and all the linguists, you know, like like saying, okay, you ever, when I say bird, I mean a different bird than, than you because we have different experiences. But yeah. I, I remember like kind of like getting on that, on that track by myself by just realizing, hey, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And that is maybe part of the alienation that I mentioned before that that I was just always examining myself. And that's also why I like Middlemarch so, so much because George Eliot is doing that to, to yeah. Dorothea, like just really examining her. It's almost like she's putting herself in Dorothea on the table and then she's like, yeah, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to like just dissect myself in this Yeah, kind of Yeah, well, I want to talk about Middlemarch, but before I do that, sure. I want to ask if you've ever read Nabokov's lectures on literature. I, I, I can't. I can't quite remember. I think somebody gave that to me a couple of years back and I read it. Is it is it where he's talking to his students? Or yeah, that... he's talking to his students. Yeah. There's one volume on Russian literature and one volume on uh, English literature. And yeah. the reason why I ask is he's always doing something like that where he he will say, okay, now here's Kafka's Metamorphosis. I need to describe the room as it's described to us. And yeah. he's, you know, he's sketching out what things look like and how many steps it is from here to the window. And, and he he finds it extremely important to uh, inhabit the world that the author is describing. And it made me kind of what you described kind of put that in mind for me, that it's it's a way of maybe getting away from the room that we might all have in mind, a childhood bedroom or something, and instead trying to recreate and visualize for oneself the room as it was in the author's mind yeah yeah i think actually andy gave that to me when we were starting the project oh yeah he, he actually had the same you know just what you did now he said like you, you should really look at this and, and obviously I've, I've forgotten a bit of, of yeah. it but yeah somewhere in there. so um, andy yeah. uh andy is your collaborative partner yeah uh, yeah andy and i we started doing the project so, so i always thought like there could be something in that direction that, that I would like to do. Yeah. But if it if it uh, hadn't been for Andy, I don't think the project would exist because he was just such a um, crucial force in, in putting this project forward. And we were in Australia at the time when we when we started doing that research. And it was just really nice, you know, to have these projects where we would research like one tiny painting and think about... Um, what are the references for that? What what could he have looked at at the time in the in the museums? Um, and and so there there was this this whole dynamic of us talking about these books, but also listening to a lot of books while we were working on them, yeah. and just having this, like little book club, but also like an art school. It was uh, quite fantastic because once you're out of uh, college or university, you you don't get to have that again. You know, yeah. And you have to find people that are so good that they will give you new input every every day okay let's take a quick break here you can see the paintings we're about to describe first we're going to talk about the collaborative process 
between Charlie Stein and her partner, Andy Best. That's interesting. And then you can see the paintings that we're going to describe by Googling Charlie Stein paintings imagined by authors or at the URL charliestein.com slash 100 paintings imagined. There's hyphens in there. 100 hyphen 100 hyphen paintings hyphen imagined. I'll have the URL in the show notes as well. We'll be back with more Charlie Stein after this. So you and Andy, so I'm I'm fascinated by this collaboration that the two of you have. So, but let's talk about the project a little bit so people sure. can kind of imagine what it is. And maybe we should talk about what you did with Middlemarch. There was a passage in Middlemarch that inspired you. Uh, what did you read and how did it affect you? And what did you then do to, to bring it to life? Well, the, the passage in, in Middlemarch, it's quite important to understanding Dorothea's character. So we previously have learned how, how devoted she is, how her, high her ideas are, and also um, that she has this intellectual stimulation that she's searching and she, she sees that all embodied in her in her um, scholarly elderly husband, right? So, so that's why she decides to marry him. And, and I think when you're really into literature and when you're really into books, you, you kind of know that feeling that you just want to sponge everything up and you have maybe you have yeah. a great professor and you want to hear everything she has to say and you you just you know you're just amazed by that person because they hold the key to the knowledge that that excites you you know mm, so yep. so that is a fascinating dynamic that is happening there and and this passage it's happening when they're on their honeymoon. And and people who know the book obviously know that famously everything goes sour and and he's not gonna give Dorothea that key to to the knowledge and he's not gonna be her her supporter um, he's not gonna be the person that's uh, got, who's gonna help her um, fi- navigate her world into that uh, uh, intellectual stimulation that she's seeking. Um, nor into like the charity work that she's into, like all, all these other things. Like he's, he's just not going to be able to see her for what she is because he has his own, his own vices and his own problems, and he's is, is running after some other higher ideas. So he's not even noticing. He almost sees her as as she's holding him down. He's, she's holding him back from writing this big, I think, encyclopedia is what he's doing. Yeah. And so, so while they're on their holiday in 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 Italy, the honeymoon. Um, his nephew also comes along, uh, young Will Ladislaw, who is going to famously fall in love with her later on, or already actually at this stage starts to fall in love with her. Yeah. And so he's, he's representing all this like youthfulness, maybe a more adequate partner, not the actual adequate partner, because that's that's the one uh, Rosalind is, is married to. That's um, the, the doctor. Mm-hmm. But um, back to the passage. And so they're in the artist studio. They're at this painter, Norman, who's German. So... Uh, Quite, quite a parallel to myself here. <laughs> so that's where my accent comes from, if anybody is wondering. Um, and he's um, he says to her, um, um, "Can you can you pose for me as as a, as a model?" And and Dorothea, who we know she's she's she even gave be- gave up horseback riding. She's a very good horseback rider. Obviously, she gives that up. That's you know that's her sexuality. She's kind of giving up by by yeah. giving up her free spiritness in a way. 
and and so so we know you know and she doesn't wear these these trinkets like the jewelry of the mother she says like no it's all for you uh, the sister kitty she gets the the nice jewelry and she just wants to have like one cross or something to hold on so we see all these 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 like i don't know like like um this air of purity that that she she really holds um yeah holds dear and is important to her yeah but then she's in this artist studio, and that's kind of a frivolous thing, right? At this time, you don't you don't just just pose like like also like the the dinner in the garden, you know, with the naked woman, like all these things. It's a, it's a bit frivolous. But here she feels like, yeah, I want to pose. I want to I want to do this this naughty thing, and and just like I'm I'm excited to do this. I'm here with the art. It's I think it's Florence. It's all um, it's the right time to 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 let loose, but in this also intellectual, beautiful way, right? Yeah. But then. Yeah. Then what happens is um, Norman is is doing her sketch and under the eyes of, of her husband, but he he says I'm going to do you a Santa Clara and and then it's all like you're like oh you know like it's a sigh because Santa Clara famously she, she's the um, founder of the of the nunnery um, um, of the Assisi uh, uh, not brotherhood sisterhood yeah. and there's like radical poverty um, I'm just following Christ you know all these like mm, like hardships, so so all the hardship right. that, that Dorothea is choosing, anyways, for her, and so she's been poured into that mold again, and she becomes statuesque, and she becomes that that figure again, um, um, and she's on a pedestal, and she, she maybe she doesn't even want to be on that pedestal, even though she's doing a lot to to sort of like dis dissociate herself from her her um, um, uh, sister, you know, who's, who's very very happy, very outgoing, very fun loving. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm looking at it now, and and listeners can take a look at it. It's on the website charliestein.com. 100 uh, paintings imagined, uh, and you can scroll down and see this this stunning picture of Dorothea as uh, in the pose of Santa Clara. There is a a, a thing I noted that the German translation <laughs> it sounds like uh, had it as her hand was on her chest. And mm -hmm. in the English, it has your leaning with your cheek against your hand. Yeah. So it's, the pose is a little bit different, but I'm just, I find it breathtaking and I'm, I'm wondering, and maybe this isn't a fair question to ask the artist, but what mm -hmm. I, what I can't decide is if she is uh, expressing this inherent suffering quality or if she's putting it on as an act or maybe she's kind of giving into it or giving herself over to it and that's what's chilling to me that it it just seems like uh where she is in the novel and where she is in her life uh it just feels like maybe something she's willing to do for the sake of this painting but then suddenly it turns into a very deep emotional experience is that mm. fair <laughs> well i think i think it's really what what also the character is going through and i, yeah. I do think that this pose it's very self-contained yeah. you know there might be even some some form of of eroticizing in it because of the of the folds of the soft fabrics of the hand yeah. there is some some quality to the to the skin i think even though it is a grisaille so it's painted in in black and white um, that that has that, and the lips slightly open. There is a there's a beautiful sculpture um, of the of the Holy uh, Therese. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Um, that that says um, it's when she's when she's so 
full of the Holy Spirit, the sculpture, and it almost looks like she's she's having a um, an orgasm. I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds a bit crude, but um, and it's just beautiful, and it's in this in this um, yeah, it, it is in an in between state. Yeah. But what is you know what is interesting about the whole Dorothea character is that George Eliot famously like she she could translate. I think she translated um, some. Uh, a text about Jesus into German, like like a really like, like a lot of like like scriptures. So she was able to speak German, and she decided to call this this town Middlemarch. Hmm. And it sounds very similar to Mittelmaß, which is mediocrity in German. Oh yeah. And, and when you think about that, that's what she's escaping from George Eliot as an author. I mean, she, right. she, she's called George for a reason, right? So so she is really always trying to escape that. And I think the most true. Um, um, storyline in in middlemarch because everybody else yeah they they are characters they're real in the in the struggles and everything but the one where i really see there is a deep personal connection is is that to dorothea trying to escape that mediocrity and she's not letting her mm. she's book she's not letting her escape she's not letting her have her full potential and and maybe that's also some some way of like like abiding or or having her do the thing that she actually didn't do in life. Um, yeah. I mean, she she self-actualized with her. I mean, if yeah. if I were <laughs> if I were a husband having just gotten married to someone and I saw her strike the pose and look the way that she looks in this painting, I would be thinking, "Oh no. Uh <laughs> there <laughs> there is a deep well here that is uh uh, very powerful, and this is deep stuff. That's wonderful. If you if you can see that in the in the painting, then it's a successful painting because that is obviously the situation we're in, right? Yeah. Her, her husband's looking at her, and he's realizing after the honeymoon or during this trip, he's realizing that he's not going to be the young, uh, 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 exciting counterpart for this woman. That he's not going to be able to fulfill the needs that that she might have, and. And and just just yeah he couldn't he's just not capable of it and yeah. if, the, if the painting is yeah that's that's wonderful yeah now you tend to work with you you tend to choose paintings where they sometimes are just referenced very briefly in the text and uh, you know I I don't see uh, Dorian Gray in here or something where the painting is the focus of the work or or maybe yeah. something that people might expect to see but it's almost like you only had a few words to work with but you had the whole novel and you had the characters and everything yeah. but um, I find that very interesting and and also I wanted you to talk a little bit about the choice to keep things monochromatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so so the thing is with not not using uh, Dorian Gray, when, like a lot of people have done it, and mm -hmm. it just it just fit into a line of hobbyists and and professional painters maybe trying to paint a painting that is maybe not even a painting because that one is like a magical mystery mirror, yeah, right? Right, it's right. Not, it's not actually a painting because I'm I'm not gonna animate it in a way that it's it's gonna look more evil over time and and yeah. um so <laughs> right I, which state do I pick you know that's, yeah. the, that's yeah. the and and I just I don't know I just felt a bit um too obvious to 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 go to these there's a there's another one that's like really tempting it's the the Welbeck novel it's it's more recent mm. book. Um, that is about um, um, a painter who painted Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst um, um, dividing up the art world and, and all of these other really well-described images. Yeah. But 
in a way, it seems if the focus is too strong on painting, it just loses a bit of the charm. I I think yeah, like there's right. not there's not this little mystery of of how can I how can I learn more about what what all of this is about because they already they they're almost fully explained in a weird way, you know. It seems like if you if you did it uh, for some of those works, you would almost be interfering with the reader's experience. And the way you've done it here, it seems like it enhances the reader's experience. And when you keep it in in black mm. and white, essentially, it's almost like reading the text. It's still consistent with the text. It's not. It's it's not too. You know, it's not a movie. It's not a stage prop. It's. It yeah. feels like it's something that could just dissolve back into the book. Yeah, I mean that's that's why we, to your previous questions, that's why we decided um, that we want them to remain monochromes because mm. we didn't want to create artifacts, um, rather rather images, because the moment you start um, to to really try to create a um, the color and then you would have to have the frame made and then all of a sudden it becomes more like creating a prop for, for a movie as, as mm -hmm. you just write it out. Yeah. And it becomes a bit gimmicky. And, and I think, you know, also how the mind operates, those images that we see in our mind, they're not, they're not fully uh, uh, HD, you know, they're not, yeah. Yeah. not always clear. So, so you do want to, you want to salvage them from, from the, the written text from the pictures in your mind, you want to salvage them, but you don't want to, to make them dead in a way, you know, that's always when you, when you're painting, you don't want to paint until there's nothing less left to say in a way, like you, you should stop it before that, that happens. Yeah. So let's talk about you and Andy, because I'm fascinated by this. Yes. And the one thing we've heard so far is that you have a lot of discussions about the works, but I'm wondering, are you, are you both painters? Can you, do you both do the same things? Do you work on the same canvases or do you, uh, d does one of you start it and the other one completes it? Or do you work separately, but you kind of bounce ideas off each other? And how does the, how does the process work for the two of you? Well, for, for this particular project, we, we did all sorts. Like it was really a relaxed way of, of working together because for instance, on the racehorse, literally I would be working on the sky and he would be working on the grass at the same time around oh, the wow. table. That's the Almost Dickens, like, yeah. that's from the Dickens novel. Yeah. 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 And, and that is quite, quite lovely, you know, to have the same amount of dedication in, in both of us, I think. Yeah. So. So we just like we're both really dedicated to the to the project, and you just have to be. And and also, I'm really um I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to painting. So normally I I would not work with other people because normally they're they're not as good as me, right? Like there's no way to practice this as much. Yeah. And he's just really really skillful, and and so he brought a lot of like technical knowledge to doing this. Yeah. That made it so much easier. But then, of course, that's always the thing in collaborations. You start having like your babies and you start working more on one thing, especially the smaller paintings. You just, you know, you just feel like you have a knack for something and then you go for it. But I think any good collaboration works like that. You're not trying to do it 50 50, but you're trying uh, to have an organic way of working. And, and we both have our own practices. So, so Andrew is also a painter. He's, he's, uh, He's also a figurative painter. He also did sculptures, photography. So we both work across media, but but we're doing something like quite different from each other. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, really nice because 
but but we we both know each other's work inside out and i think that's also quite helpful but it really helps um just for your own personality that you're able to you know you, you don't compare yourself too much on because our practices are really individual yeah and, and when we do the collaborations we we kind of like we play by the rules you know we set up the rules for this collaboration and we just wanted to to function in that way that that we've decided and and then it's just really it's just really easy you know you just want to see it happen come to life yeah well the racehorse it's a beautiful painting it's so uh, stark against the sky and it's just such a a, a beautiful horse I, I really encourage people to go look at this website because you include the passages from the works i think my listeners are really going to enjoy it but when you were describing that relationship that you have with andy i mean my heroes of heroes are uh john lennon and paul mccartney and i'm endlessly fascinated by the stories of the way that they would work together and and they could you know sometimes help each other sometimes they would write things yeah. together nose to nose sometimes they would write it separately and it was only yeah. it was enough for the other person to know that the other person was going to hear it and say that's good or you know that that'll yeah. do yeah, your relationship with Andy is the closest thing I've ever heard for an artistic relationship for visual mm -hmm. artists that seems to have a lot of those same qualities. That's such a nice compliment, but I think you're really right because it's so important, no matter what your artistic um, um, expression is, that you have somebody that you can bounce stuff back with, that you know that their their um, judgment is is valid and interesting. And and we I mean we have these things like like he comes into my studio and he says oh that's that's a bit orange or or, or <laughs> are you gonna are you gonna finish that part you really have to do the background something like that I get really mad of course and I explain to him why it's fantastic the way it is and then in fifty percent of the cases I change it yeah <laughs> so, so and for me it's really important that I defend it you know also in that moment and he knows that so yeah. it's not. Um, it's not this like like toxic or weird relationship where I'm like yelling or something, but it's just it's part of the process that you at least try to defend what you've done, and then you go back and you're like, hey, is there something I can do better? Is there something I have to change? And we do help each other with with writing a lot. Like we sometimes it's easier, you know, you more you have a little bit more distance to the other person's work, mm -hmm. so so it's just sometimes you find the words easier when you're not stuck in the subject matter with your nose, you know? Yeah. Well, and then the other one I want to mention to uh, <laughs> listeners is the portrait of Anna Karenina, which I've just transfixed. I just find it transfixing. And I want, to, it makes me want to read the book again. It makes me want to see a movie with this version of, with your version of Anna as the uh, main actress. Like it's just a, uh, and and really what you were basing it on was just a snatch of prose, just a couple of sentences where uh, they were painting a portrait of Anna in Italian costume and and in a graceful and showy French manner. And it says, you know, to everyone who saw it, this portrait seemed very successful. But it really, I mean, there's a very famous uh, picture of Anna Karenina that's on the Penguin edition and a lot of editions. Uh, that um, gives one version of her. But this version that you've painted of her just seems like a completely different Anna, but one that mm -hmm. I really would like to get to know better. Wait, well, also, I mean, she is she is like that, you know? She is, I, yeah. I know the painting you're referring to, but um, doesn't 
Mm, doesn't Levin at some stage say that she's she's kind of hitting on him as well, but it's not like her charm is not really working with, with him? Yeah. Maybe also because the evening ends before it's time or something. But he's describing the charm, and we know that charm. We know that from the from the beautiful girls at the party. We know that like they just reach behind them and magically a full glass of wine appears, you know, because people are just attending to them. And she has said like she's commanding the room, right? Like we we get that sense of her. Yeah. And we actually we never really learn anything about Anna. She just remains she she remains a woman created by a man in, at the end of the day. She's a she's a fascinating sensual being, but but she's never really allowed to be more than that in a way i, I hope i'm not i'm yeah. not shocking by saying that but the the quote you read i think is really describing bronski so well right right he loves the way she looks that's why he's doing this yeah. but also he likes the compliments on his skillfulness even though he's a hobbyist and he's quite happy with having drawn this also kind of out of time you know like she he's doing like in the french style but she's wearing an italian costume so he can't even place his love interest. He can't really, he, he's, he's transfixed by her. No, absolutely. He loves her. He's, he's going to do anything for her, yeah. but he doesn't see her. Yeah. And, and that's, that's obvious when we look at that little portrait, that little line, as you said, it's, it's not a, it's not a big, big uh, text there, but that's the way he's reflecting on them and often uh, on her. And often when we look at, I think it's called ekphrases when you have um, images uh, appearing in books right they, they are kind of they function like a mirror they show us how the person that does them looks at something or how somebody not the narrator sees something right it's like yeah. a, it's like third angle again like you have the characters you have the narrator but then you have this this third person the, the genius on the on the rim of society who's going to look at them but in this case you have you have one of the characters drawing the, the um, doing the painting and and he's and I, that's also why she's she's quite you know quite a woman of today I would say like almost like somebody from a costume movie I think the shoulders are bare and and just this uh, sensuality that that she has and she obviously that that makes her so charming. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really happy with any of the portraits I saw of her online or, or in, in the library, so so I thought she has to be if if we want to get that feeling across. She has to be more um, of that, that, like an endearing character almost, like more more luscious. She's not just. She's. A, I mean, she's a little bit like like Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice, mm, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, I there. think that's that's why everybody falls in love with her, even though <laughs> you know they have to say like, why am I falling in love with her? I'm not sure that Tolstoy mm -hmm. is giving her enough credit here in in you know her agency and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one thing too. I've noticed, it seems like she has two different eyes, like her, her, uh, if I cover up half of her face, her, yeah. her left eye gives me one mood completely and her right eye gives me a completely different mood. But the combination of the two, when you just look at the painting normally, mm. is just mesmerizing. I mean, that's something I, I like to work with a lot and play with in my work is the gaze. Mm. So the painting yeah. looking... I always found that fascinating. We yeah. are we are talking about a flat image, right? We're talking about something that's two dimensional. Somebody puts some skin colored paint round blob in the middle, then there's some white that's the eyes. And but when you when people describe figurative painting, they're always interpreting. They always start to interpret. They don't say, okay, there's a bit of skin color in the middle. There's they say there is a woman. There is a woman looking. 
and and just as I mean, it's it's almost magical, or it is it is magical um, feeling when you have your painting start staring back at you in the studio. You've created something that that yes, it's a it's a placeholder for a person or for an emotion, but it's actually looking back at you. And I, I still to this day I find this very fascinating and very powerful. Yeah. So you mean you as a painter, you're not saying oh, I know how I will make her look. There's some part of you that thinks, oh, there she is, or oh, wow, she's she's looking at me now. There is some degree that you can't consciously influence. Yeah. Yes, you can sketch every detail out. Yet, yes, you can do that. But I'm actually not that interested in that when I when I work. Because I think it's, anyways, I think the the magic of, of us being here really lies in, in, in what we create. I find that, see, I don't really need superstition. I don't, I don't really need, um, um, believing in, in, in books like the secret or something like that, where you can order from the universe. I, I don't really need that because I find it already incredible what we as humans are capable when we think about literature, when we think about painting. And I want to leave that open and I want this uncertainty doesn't have to be you know people call it the muse people call it the sublime people people call it um whatever magical inspiration but i think just just leaving it open allowing for that gap and that's a that's a scary thing that's a scary thing in life allowing for that gap in a relationship as well allowing for not fully understanding something that is that is in front of you and and i find that a very comfortable place to be and i guess that's that's why i'm an artist because I think that's where interesting things happen, and I, I can um, accept that feeling of being a little bit queasy or being being uncertain where the journey is going, mm. and and that's that's where where we have the room to contemplate interesting questions. Yeah, well, that's why I love literature, and that's why I love art, and that's why I love uh, the magic of musical creation from people like John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Is that it seems like that space where creativity takes over is the closest thing to getting us at the mysteries of life and being comfortable living there and embracing the ambiguity or the sublimity of it or the uh sometimes the the frightening aspects of it and just the general complexity of it is almost like uh pointing us toward a way of appreciating existence yeah wonderfully put i mean just just the complexity is something that that a lot of people just just can't accept and of course me at times the same Hmm. but complexity is the one thing that's why i said i can't really tell you whether i was a happy child or inherently sad child yeah because there is there is all these different layers and there's also misremembering and and it's kind of beautiful that for different occasions i will think about my own past in different ways and and just for allowing and i know in american oral tradition i think it's a lot about storytelling and people create their own story and once they've create created this narrative they're really they're really happy with it and i always admire that i think it's beautiful how how american storytelling works like even any lecture you see in university uh, given by an American, they can talk about the mathematical formations of, of pack ice. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and they will have a penguin and they will have this amazing story and, and compared like German lectures are really like boring and dry normally <laughs> because, because it's, it's kind of tacky. You can't, you can't use a story, you know, to illustrate something. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, but, but 
if you go too much with the idea of storytelling, you know, in a, like a Tony Robbins kind of way, the problem is also that maybe you're misremembering things and you're not allowing for moments of, of um, feeling completely disconnected and, and rebuilding that. And you don't have to always put that into a whole narr narrative, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I would be really happy if people would, would accept complexity and phases, you know, you can have a phase way a certain way. You, you don't have to always be that way that you think you are right now. And, and I think art allows for that, for that place where you, where you can come from a completely different angle and then you're standing in front of a painting and all of a sudden everything around you crumbles and you, you, you reevaluate, you know? Mm, that's beautiful. Okay. We have two more things to do. <laughs> Uh, sure. before we wrap up here. The first is we are, this is a new thing for us as a thank you for appearing or joining me as a guest on the History of Literature. We're pleased to be able to offer you a two-part honorarium we going, oh. we're going to purchase and send to you any book of your choice. That's the first part. And we will also donate to a charitable organization that you select. So, Charlie Stein, is there a book that you would like us to buy for you? Oh, it's terrible. Oh, that's that's so good. Um, I can't wait. What what? I, I just read a really good book. That I, I ordered them straight away. So I'm a bit, <laughs> a bit caught off guard. Any book that is amazing. Oh my God, what I like. Hmm. I I think I have to think about that, Jack, and tell you afterwards. Okay, you think is about that. Okay? that. Yes, I'll yeah, include I'm, it in the. Uh, in the uh, in the aftermath here, so we'll fill everyone oh, I, in. Which, actually, the oh. the Dishoff Phyllis book, like the the woman that was on your the the church the church goers women. What was the title again? Ah, so shall we? Yes, uh, Disha Philia, the secret lives of church ladies. Yes, exactly. That's it. We will send you that book. And is there a charitable organization you'd like us to donate to? Yeah, there is there is actually a um, a hospice here in uh, Brandenburg for children uh, with terminal illnesses, mm. and it's um, it's an organization I found by chance because they wanted to buy a backpack that I was selling online, and and then when they gave me the address, I saw um, I saw what they were doing, and I I just I just fell in love and I said. Um, I think I found my charity, right? Because they're just yeah. they're only based on on charitable uh, um, money, so so it's not they're not supported uh, from the from the government, and they they just do these amazing events. You know, they they make sure that the kids have like hikes and and nice experiences, and they say no matter if you're if you're there for only one day and and you you leave that that night, you know, for 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 the next world, or if you're if you're staying for for a year or two, um, they they want to make sure that you had a good experience there and that you you made some beautiful memories. So, um, I I think that's my that's my charity. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we also have a surprise bonus question. Are you ready? I I don't know if I'm ready. I'm very excited, but yeah, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay. After a long life of success and prosperity, you fall asleep peacefully. That night, you pass into the realm of the spirits. And good news, you've made it to heaven. Your gatekeeper tells you that heaven is what's perfect for you, just as it's specifically tailored to everyone who comes there. He shuffles his notes, perplexed. Ah, wait, he says, there seems to have been some mix-up. Huh. It seems you're being given a choice. You can either pass into the world of any painting. Up here, all the paintings are real and full, three-dimensional. 
you will be in that world forever. Or you can join the world of a novel. All the characters will be there in that world, and you will be among them, living and loving just like them. So do you choose a painting or a book, and which one do you pick? Oh, that's a tough question. So so I can only choose one, right? Like, I, I will be stuck in that forever. Are you sure it's, <laughs> are you sure it's heaven, though? <laughs> so your choice is none of the above. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I... As I said, like I, I would really like to 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 have been a, a ship's mate or something mm. like that. So maybe I, I would I would go on a on a big journey on a boat. I, I mean, I think also Middle Earth is really exciting. Oh, I I yeah. spend my life in Middle Earth. You know, if I if I get tired of all the fighting that's going on, I, I might I might retire to to uh, the Shire that's yeah. still around because you know <laughs> every book has an end. So. It depends, you know. It depends also on the on the quality of. Do I have to live through it all? Am I just am I just gonna be in that beautiful painting? If I have to pick a painting, of course, I would pick one that's extremely diverse, maybe a world map. Um, so, um, <laughs> it's, I I hope I'm I'm not I'm not being too. But you know, I have to spend eternity there. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think one of one of those things that I've I've mentioned because I I do like a good adventure, but I also like a good rest, and I think that's the complexity that. Yeah. That either the novel or the painting I I would want to inhabit for the rest of eternity yeah. uh, would would have to offer right like some yeah. some level of complexity that's bearable. It's interesting you chose Middle Earth because it's it's maybe the most fully realized world that there is. Yeah. It sort of has the most for you to explore and the most uh, different things for you to do. And and I could imagine you traveling on a ship there and and then coming back and retiring with your canvases and paints and painting what you see in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think we go with Middle Earth then. Tolkien did a good job. <laughs> okay. Well, I know that you've you've told me that you've you and Andy have listened to the History yes. of Literature podcast while you're painting, and I hope I haven't ruined any any masterpieces. No, you you're you're intrinsic ingredient to the process by now. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, okay. it's it's wonderful to have your voice in the studio, and and it's uh, almost unreal to to be able to communicate with that voice in the studio now yeah yeah well now i i feel like the bar has been raised i'm going to have to make sure i do <laughs> as, as, as good as i can because this is quite a, a privilege to be there with such sure. uh with such artistic activity going on charlie stein thank you so much for joining me today on the history of literature thank you so much for having me okay there we go do you see what i mean folks I may be a lunkhead, but I am a lucky lunkhead indeed. My thanks to Charlie Stein for being here today. Charlie's charity, the Children's Hospice. My God, that combination of words is heartbreaking. It should not be a phrase that exists. On the other hand, thank goodness that they are there. Life is full of tragedies, and the people at the Baron Hertz Children's Hospice are doing some incredible work. We will be happy to donate on Charlie's behalf to them as a thank you to Charlie for joining us. And because our hearts are with those kids in Leipzig and their loved ones and the saints and angels who are helping them out with some rays of sunshine. We'll put a link to Baron Hertz or Bear's Heart in the show notes. We will also send a copy to Charlie of the book she requested. Did I say that right? We will send a copy to Charlie of the... 
We'll send a copy of the book that Charlie requested to Charlie. It's one of our old favorites, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia. As you can hear, an excerpt of that in our archives. Thank you to Disha Filia for that. And thank you again to Charlie Stein for joining us. We will be back soon with more literary goodness. You might think our run of good guess is over, but we're just getting started, people. So stay tuned. Or I guess subscribe is more appropriate and tell all your friends. I am Jack Wilson. Speaking of your friends, I'd like to think I'm one of your friends. I certainly could use a few friends. If you could be mine, can't we all? I'm here for you people. Here in the spirit of friendship, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>